You may be seated. I will certainly be directing you to certain passages of Scripture. I'll be reading them. And this is going to be broken up. This sermon is called, You Are the Protagonist, which means you are the, um, the main role in the story. And it's broken up like in uh, three parts. I'm going to deal a lot in the first part with the soul, after the introduction, with the soul itself in us, body and soul. In, in the second part, I'll be dealing with what we have as a commonality as Christians in this life. And then the final part, it will be more to do with um, how we're supposed to be particular as people before God. So, you as the protagonist, um, it's going to focus on your part in God's story. You are the lead character in your story, but as I said previously, your life is not about you. God's story gives yours meaning. You're meant to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. We went over that last time, and it is possible to do that. It is possible because God made it possible by the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus' life, suffering, and death, along with his resurrection and ascension, these are your great hope. Before that, you'd have nothing to do with God. You would have nothing to do with him. It would all be about you, you, you. You've been made as God's creature and called by the grace of God to grow to, a, grow to have a wonderful fear. Fear. It's your privilege, actually, to learn how to fear God, your Creator and your blessed Redeemer. The primary aim in every person's life should be to learn how God wants him to be and what God wants him to do. It's all that is important, and you should have no other agenda. I think some of this will sound kind of dry at times. I think what's been prepared here will give you real answers for life, real direction for how you should proceed. And some of it may may seem a bit daunting, like, Oh, you're kidding. I can never get away from God. I can never have me time. Don't think that way. This is glorious. The fear that I'm talking about, fearing God, the fear I mentioned in a previous sermon, explained it a little more, is what they would call a filial fear. It's a good fear. One that is properly fostered only in a good family. There's a lot of fear in a lot of families. Filial fear is promoted in a good family. It's a family fear. It's a fear a child would have for a father that the child loves and wants to be with. He wants to sit on his dad's lap. That's a good, healthy fear. It's a fear that honors It's not a servile fear, as I mentioned previously, a slave fear that you might have for a father that you're afraid of. 
That's a bad fear. Servile fear does not run to love and to please, but it runs away and hides. It's important that you learn the difference. Filial fear ushers you into an awesome and nervous wonder of a great and almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The other, the bad fear, it makes you want to hide under a mountain to escape him. And for sure, the sinner wishing to escape from God will run all the way to hell to find such freedom. Michael Reeves says, All fears are foretaste. The sinful fears and dreads of unbelievers are the first fruits of hell. The filial fears of Christians are the first fruits of heaven. Now our fears are partial. Then they will be unconfined. You must pursue the proper fear of God. If you do, you'll begin to delight at keeping his commands as well. You'll begin to delight in how to love him more deeply. I quoted a theologian named Benson last time. Benson remarked that we are to love God with a superlative love. We must love God above any creature whatsoever, including those sitting with you in the pew. And love nothing besides him but what we love for him and in subordination to him. So here you are. You're the lead. You're the lead role. The protagonist. And you find yourself at times kind of straddling. Straddling between that good filial fear of God, but also that troubling servile fear, or, or maybe you're struggling, you find yourself muddle-headed and afraid of people or, or things or ideas, more afraid of those things even than you are of God. For us to be good protagonists, the, the Puritan William Bates warns, quote, our sinful fears our sinful fears cannot be nursed or left to fester. They cannot be nursed or left to fester. We must fight fear with fear. In other words, his recommendation is, as you, you fear for God grows, it will obliterate, obliterate these other fears. Now I'm going to read two passages to help inform us today. First is from Deuteronomy chapter 10, 12 through 18. And I want you to listen just so you get your head wrapped around it. It's always been about fear the Lord and then you will be loving him. All right? Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 18. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, 
the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So we immediately see Moses attaches loving and obeying to fearing God. There's no contradiction at all. They belong together. Fear of God is good. Next, Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26 Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen to this last sentence here closely. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In this passage, we see how very valuable your soul is. Your soul is extremely important. It's worth more than the whole created world. It's highly prized by God. First portion of the Lord's Day, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1. From from there, it says it begins with, What is your, your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want to start uh, with how you fit into God's story. And at the end of last sermon, I quoted from William Kirk Kilpatrick, a Christian psychologist, the hero Christian psychology has the task of helping us go beyond beyond the level of merely working on our problems or seeing our lives as clinical studies and onto the level of discerning the distinctive part we are meant to play and the importance of playing it well. Kilpatrick was referring to our story fitting into God's larger story. Part A. I'm going to say something that seems like I'm contradicting myself. You are the primary concern. You must think about yourself. I, me, mine. In this one thing. You must not lose your soul. You must not lose your soul. You with God is the primary thing. Not you with your husband. Not you with your wife, not you with your kids or your dad. You with God is your primary thing. Think about yourself. It's all that can matter. You fearing and loving him. You are body and soul. First point. And God communes what? With the soul. He communes with the soul. The invisible God with the invisible you. 
Further, your soul is the chief of your body. It steers and gives the direction. It wants what it wants, and the body tries to comply, all a little faulty. I tell you, you've got to make your soul's communion with God your all in all. Again, you and God is the primary thing. Your physical life is not as important. Your work and home and food and clothing is not comparable to your soul. Even your spouse, as I said, your children, your parents and friends do not matter if you forfeit your soul. As Jesus said, what does it matter if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? So make your primary purpose your soul's communion with God. The next point is your life is not about you. If you are one who determines to make life about you, you got to hear this. If you're one who determines to make life about you, if you live for self, if you're self-determined, self-absorbed, self-reliant, selfish, then you certainly are one who will lose your soul. You will lose it. And this loss means that you will experience complete forfeiture of your soul's ability to have the pleasures God intended for you. Complete forfeiture. You will get what you're after, right? You will get what you're after. No God. But what you don't realize is that all of the blessings of a warm sun, of of singing birds and fruits and vegetables and breads and pastas and love, joy and laughter and human touch and trees and children to love and be loved by, these these go with God, not with you. They do not go with you. No, this life is not about you. Yet thankfully, Jesus has come to save you from yourself. Turn to him, for he he paid the way and paves the way to turn you to his Father. If you don't repent and get this right, you are on the course to lose your soul. And it doesn't mean you will cease to exist. Oh, no. Like you'll be erased or something. For hell is a destination, and it says the fire is forever. That might not convince you. If you think, well, God is merciful, God is forgiving, how would he leave me to suffer in hell forever. Now remind you, your soul is immortal too, as well as the flaming fires. And the thing is, okay, unrepentant sinners who go to hell, they're still sinning. They haven't stopped. We're not sinning as believers any longer, but they are. 
They're not innocent victims. And in fact, they might believe at some point, I can't say, obviously, the biggest problem is in hell, though they have gotten away from God, so to speak, their sins are now totally unrewarding. And their punishments are never ending. Third point in this section. We Christians have a wonderful destination secured for us, not by our works, but by Jesus Christ. And for you, Christian, I want to spend a little time discussing the soul's composition. It's a bit of a mystery, not completely a mystery. I think it will com- it'll benefit you in your communion with God, which is what I really want to drive at in a little bit here. Somehow the parts that matter to your soul are your mind, your heart, your conscience, and your memories. These are not material things I'm speaking of. They're invisible. And that list is not necessarily exhaustive, though these keep showing up in Scripture as part of the soul's interaction. It's what's going on inside. And it appears, if you think about it, that they will all remain a part of you after your earthly body is laid to rest. The mind, the heart, your conscience, your memories. Your body is not your soul. But, While on earth, the two have what P. Andrew Sandlin called a synthetic relationship. A synthetic relationship. He meant there's a synthesis between them. The soul, it calls on the body to perform, and it does. Eyes, ears, nose, brain, feet, hands. But also the body, it it brings its experience into the storehouse of the soul. These experiences come in and remain and they form our memories. Memories, we all have them. Vast amounts of them, innumerable, like the sand of the sea in volume. The Bible often speaks of our souls by using metaphors. Fourth point, using metaphors. God portrays the soul as if it had senses similar to the body. Touch, smell, sight, hearing, taste. The Apostle Paul writes how he wants the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened. There's an example. David in Psalm 19, listen, writes about God's law and its effect on the soul. David uses these metaphors. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 34, 8, we're told to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's not physical things we're doing. This is our soul. 
Scripture regularly, regularly describes the invisible inner man to the body, the counterpart of the body and its functions. Fifth point, in regard to your soul, Christian, the Holy Spirit came into your inner man to make it alive again. The Holy Spirit regenerates our souls in order to reestablish something. You know what that something is? That vital communion with God. It had been lost by Adam. Jesus had to pay and pave the way to bring it back to us. The Holy Spirit comes, comes in to dine with you and me. It's not that he just dines with us here, but we're supposed to go with him, walk with him, talk with him. We know this was God's intention by what the prophet Ezekiel said in chapter 36, verses 26 through 27. He wrote, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Apostle John verifies the purpose of the Holy Spirit in us. John wrote, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. It's a sweet communion. It's sweet communion. It should be. God in you to help you overcome all your fears, all your anxieties and phobias, as well as all your sin and the world and the devil. John also wrote, and I remember this from when I was a young Christian man laying upstairs on a bed in my grandmother's house. It meant a lot. He wrote, little children... You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is key. It's going to bring us to the next part. This is how you become a hero in your story. You become the hero. You become the victor. Not by yourself. You become a loser by yourself. You become a hero by relying on your communion with God. This this is his work. And you must choose. Your part is to choose to avail yourself to him. If you choose not to, if you choose to go your own way or not have time for him, good luck you're not going to make much of a story. So it brings me to part B. There are two aspects to your story within God's story. And the first is our common calling as Christians. This is true for all of us. You must learn 
that you are the same as Christ's other loved ones. We have things in common. It's for each of us to fear him as a father and not to be afraid of him. That is Christian. We've been adopted. This fear of him should cause you to delight in him and want to keep his commands. Not begrudgingly, like a naughty child who only complies to keep from being punished, but as a happy son or daughter. And you know when it is. There's times, seen it in my own children, seen it in my grandkids, where they're eager to do what you want them to do. They're eager to run and get this thing for you. They're eager to, to please. And then there's times when they're not so eager. And it's like pulling your teeth. And you've got to threaten them. We should want to be like that eager child. It takes time. It takes work with God. George MacDonald describes it like this. If then any child of the father finds that he is afraid before him, bad fear, that the thought of God is a discomfort to him, or even a terror, okay, you're not good with God right now, let him make haste, that child. Let him make haste. Let him not linger to put on any garment, but rush at once in his nakedness, a true child, for shelter from his own evil and God's terror into the salvation of the Father's arms. The home when he was sent that he might learn that it was his home. MacDonald asked, what father, being evil, would not win to see the child with whom he was vexed running to his embrace. How much more will not the father of our spirits who seeks nothing but his children themselves receive him with open arms? Hopefully that translated. Second point in this section, not only is fearing God with a good fear our common lot, but it will begin to change your motivation. Thomas Boston wrote this. He said, slavish fear dreads nothing but hell and punishment. Filial fear dreads sin itself. We don't want to sin because of our wonderful feelings for our Heavenly Father. So we fear sin. Proper fear of God and this superlative love and obedience, that's the common call for every Christian. It's, it's what the Holy Spirit and the Scripture and even the church is, is designed to produce in you. Doing the commands of God, those are first order things, first order. Now you might begin to think to yourself, sitting in the pew, right? Well, if it's common, it's been common to Christianity, it's been common to the multitudes of Christians, if it's common, will it just make me one of the many? Sometimes that communal aspect of it will convince you that you could easily just blend in with the crowd then. Like you go to a football game and there's thousands upon thousands of people and you're just like one of them. No one's going to really notice. Going to a concert, people filling the arena, you're just one person. No one hardly notices you. That's the case when, when I say these common 
calling of Christians. That's the case. Maybe God won't notice you. Is it possible then that you could be a Christian and remain at a distance? Unattached somewhat. Non-intimate. It would be very wrong assumption for you to think that you can be a Christian fulfilling this common calling apart from intimacy with God. He requires intimacy in these common things. Each of us has to practice and get used to His presence. His presence. You will never get lost in the crowd of saints God won't have that. If you think you have gotten lost in the crowd of saints, repent. God will not have it. I'm going to read two texts. First one's from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice Paul says, you work out your own salvation. Charles Ellicott explains, so don't get too far ahead of yourself. To work out your salvation. To work out is to carry out, to completion, what is begun. This is the function of man as fellow worker, fellow worker with God. This working out of your salvation. First in his own soul, then among his brethren, this working out of his own salvation. God is the beginner and perfecter of every good work. Man's cooperation is secondary and intermediate. We do play a part in this. So you're not working to get saved. You are continuing on with God in the work of your soul now that you are saved. I suggest if you haven't thought seriously about these things, let the heavy lifting start now between you and God. The other text I want you to hear is this one. And this really kind of peels things back. It's Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such 
things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ, uh, sorry, uh, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, listen to this, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You got to walk and talk with God. This is to offer up your body, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. You've got to be walking and talking with God. It's your spiritual form of worship. It's to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, the good kind. It's your, it's your hero's work. Now that your soul has been saved, attentiveness to God should become your all in all. You are to walk by the Spirit, not like you used to walk. We knew nothing else, nothing different. Younger children growing up in Christian homes, maybe you can't make this separation as obviously as some of us who became Christians when we were adults. But you'll get and understand what I'm saying. You are to walk by the Spirit, not like you used to walk, giving in to self and sin. God doesn't like that. He's opposed to it. It's got to go. Come on, Christian. Keep in step with Him. Not with your fits of anger or your sexual immorality or your drunkenness or idolatry or gossip. It's time for you to make yourself available to God. Don't run off to do your own thing. I'm a Christian. I've listened to a couple good podcasts. I'm ready to go. God's Spirit will war against and defeat your sinful desires. He will conquer them, though they are dear to you. But it will require you to walk with Him and talk with Him. Keep in step with Him. He can do it. You must not disregard His presence. That's what we do. You just, don't, you just don't disregard his presence, that's all. Keep the conversation going. Talk to him while hardly stopping. It should be for you, as Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 19, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. I didn't insert any words there. Do not quench the Spirit. The idea is He wants to burn in us. He wants us to enjoy the heat and the warmth, and we throw cups of water on Him. There was a guy, Brother Lawrence. He was a monk. He was in the 17th century, so 1600s, right? He was highly respected. 
uh, for his godliness. And he wrote a book, or yes, he wrote a book where it was interviewed, written by a friend called The Practice of the Presence of God. It's a very small book, easy to read, but packed. And in the, in the book, he says this, that we, he teaches that we should establish ourselves in a sense of God's presence by continually conversing with him. That it was a shameful thing to quit conversation, to think of trifles and fooleries. Now, you know how hard that can be. To, to move off the dime and have conversations, get work done, listen to something, have your mind elsewhere. His advice is to continue to bring it back, to continue to make God part of your moments. And if this kind of walk with God seems far away, and frankly, it often seems far away to me, then you have to ask him, like King David, to restore unto you the joy of your salvation. Or maybe you never lived like that, ever. You wouldn't be the first. You wouldn't be the first Christian who never really lived like that. I just suggest, friends, Prepare your soul for a change if you want it. And God may ask you at first, where on earth had your joy gone? You, you say, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Where did it go, my child? Why have you been ignoring me so? It is then you should remember George MacDonald's advice. If that's the feeling you get, it's then that you think, rush at once. Go at once. Even if you're naked, just go run, true child, for shelter onto your father's lap. And he will receive you. Because that's what Jesus paid for. Next point. As you work out your wonderful your wonderful salvation with proper fear and trembling. It will also be necessary for the Spirit to renew your mind, not your brain, sorry, your mind. It's important for those of us with fears that the Spirit renew our mind. It's God's Spirit using His Word. Who? What will He do? He will reinterpret your memories for you. And He will do it with you. Those memories deepen our soul's descending chambers. God can fix. Many, many of them have been stored and hidden and even lost in those rooms, but they are in there. And your memories house the things that make you afraid. You need help with them. You need to see all those past things as God sees them in order to gain peace. You need to see them 
as God sees them. St. Augustine, he wrote, the memory, the memory is, as it were, the belly of the mind. And joy and sadness are like sweet and bitter food. So if the things you experienced as a younger you are coaxed back to the surface of your mind with a rush of fear or a rush of lust or any other passion like anger, because your soul is so accustomed to those things, if those memories rush back, they're not aiding you, are they? But they're helping to undo you. They've got to be changed. They say that in your head, there's something called the amygdala. I probably said it wrong again. How do you say that, Kristen? Amygdala. I think that's what they say. Amygdala? All right. And it's made up of these two small round structures. It's physical. And it plays a part in detecting and learning the things that are important because of their emotional significance to you. So what happens is that when your eyes see or your ears hear or your nose even smells something that your soul considers, considers a potential threat based on memories of the past, the amygdala takes over in milliseconds and you can go a bit off the rails. It hardly lets you think. It hijacks the rational process and signals other brain regions that they should release adrenaline into your bloodstream so that you can't remain calm. It triggers you to fight or flight or whatever. It's irrational. And I bring this physical thing up, this reaction to make the point that our memories are significant. We what we remember, how we remember, the interpretations of those memories, true or even false, that's a key. They need to be attended to by the Spirit of God in you, with you. You've got to deal with them. One more thing about memories. It's about the new ones. The new ones you're accumulating day by day. As, Christian, as a Christian working out your salvation with the Holy Spirit, you must consider what are you now choosing to put into those storehouses? What are you looking at? What are you listening to? Are your conversations upright? Too much attention placed on the wrong things is like what? Opening a dam and flooding the whole city. Because they're going to be in there. You won't get rid of them. Today, smartphones, iPads, TV screens, computers, earbuds, they kind of have all, they've kind of corralled us away from spending the time with God that we should be having those conversations with Him. Very addictive. He wants intimacy, but 
But with these things, we load, we load ourselves full of memories, oftentimes unrelated to him. And what is your mind doing with it? As these new parts and pieces arrive into your soul, are they coming in clean with God's interpretation? Because we're going to bring them in one way or the other, some things. Are they coming in clean? What your ears hear and eyes see, are you asking God's Spirit to sift them for contaminants? Is he even being allowed to play his part in this? I ask because those things will go in and stick against the ribs. Everything from blatant pornography to silly philosophies to live by to breaking news to political viewpoints and theoretical musings to medical situations. If you're constantly consuming and not asking God to scrub it clean, then your storehouse is being filled with future Harmful garbage. These things add fuel for the flesh that we are not supposed to walk in. If you think for a moment, you can check out with God and check in harmlessly to these other forms of societal interaction, you're mistaken. You're fooling yourself. Don't fool yourself. Next point, bad memories can cause you problems. And the soul, the soul cannot be fixed with a pill. You'll never fix your soul with a pill. A pill may mask things temporarily for the body, the body's sake. But God must transform your heart and your soul and your mind. Next point, your soul is immortal. When God takes it from your body, it will, it will step into eternity. You will wait to be clothed with, with a new spiritual body, but you will exist with memories, the mind, the heart, the conscience, all proper now, sin-free and good. No more improper affections or faulty memories. Last part. You're also called to live a particular life, different from other Christians, okay? We're special this way, too. We each have fingerprints. This you should call your secondary calling. It's revealed over the course of your lifetime. It is ongoing. You learn who you are as you grow with Jesus, and it is dictated by the place God has constructed for you in history. It is also determined by your thoughts and your words and your actions along the way. Luther, Martin Luther, argued that every person's calling was important. Butcher, baker, funeral director, merchant. These were as vital to God as any full-time minister was his point. I agree with that. If we take that simple definition, then what is your calling? I'm not convinced that your vocation captures God's idea of a person's calling. I think it's more personal than that. 
Here's why I question it. It's not simply a matter of what Forsell does for work or even as a career, but who he is. My work might be in sales or as a business owner or writer or preacher, but do any of those define me? Not fully. Our work is important, and we are authenticated by it to a degree. But I can say that some of my customers on the sales side of things who experience me as a salesman, they don't even know that I write or, or preach. Or that I even started the business with my name on it. And some who know me as pastor have no clue that I've written some books or own a business, etc. So what is my calling? What is God's particular design for me? I I kind of think it is to be the best for self I can be. And then to walk in the works, whatever they are, that he has prepared for me. And some of those works could look very different for me in 10 years. But the for sale part should get better with age. We'll see. (laughs) These same thoughts can be applied to all of us, to the most downtrodden person, living anywhere on the face of the earth, really, to the handicapped person, the person suffering terminal illness, those with great economic disadvantage. It doesn't matter. Be the best for self you can be. I do think you should consider sometimes we kick against the goads when it comes to being content, okay, in the place God has us and doing the things, okay, God has given us to do. Sometimes we don't like it. We want something different, something we think we'll like more. And an important part of life is just to learn contentment. It's to learn to walk with Him, and that can be a long, drawn-out lesson. But He glories in it. You be with God in that lesson. Here, Brother Lawrence taught that we ought to give ourselves up to God with regard to things, to both things temporal and spiritual, and seek our satisfaction only in the fulfilling of His will. Listen whether he lead us by suffering or by consolation, for all would be equal to a soul truly resigned, resigned to him. At other times we become discontent, but it's because we're being urged with a heavenly impulse. God stirs you maybe to move a little more from one thing to the next. That's proper. I call this particular life calling, a secondary calling, for a couple of reasons. First, it is uncommon to others. It's you. It's your thing. And so, because it's you and your thing, it's highly susceptible to your misunderstanding of what God wants for you. 
The heart is deceitful beyond all else. And the person might get stuck in their heads that they're supposed to be an artist or a comedian or an actor or model because mommy always told me I'd be good at it. And they really, really want to. I also believe this calling is secondary to the primary calling, the common calling of all Christians, because what we think of ourselves should never interfere with the things God has already told us to do. In other words, if our fear and love for God requires us not to look on a man or a woman with lust in our hearts, then our particular calling, our particular calling will not permit us to publish pornography. Pretty simple one. Next point, some of, your particip- per- some of your particularities come from how God designed your origin story. We each have an origin story. There were physical distinctiveness, is, geographical placements, relationship challenges, ethnic, religious, parents and siblings, economic factors. But also, much of you has been formed since your origin God has formed you through life, experiences, decisions made, the things you've seen, been taught, heard, tasted, smelled. All these are in your memories. All of these have formed your skills and capacities and so on. Almost done. Next point, relationships, opportunities, limitations, blessings, curses, and God orchestrates. God's orchestrated plan to form you. You have liked some of it and you have disliked some of it. But you must walk with him and receive all as from his hand for your good. God is sovereign. You will learn to walk with him. It should become your best habit. That's the key. Make it your best habit. Though... It will take practice over time. Finally, if you keep in step with the Holy Spirit, you will become beautiful and full. But if you grieve Him and follow the desires of of your flesh, then you will become less beautiful and anemic. All of it will be based upon how you commune with God along the way. This then puts the emphasis back on the common call to walk with him. But now, at least, thankfully, you're making your mark for his kingdom and you are a hero for his causes as he planned. Let's pray. Lord, I pray and I ask a blessing upon this uh, sermon. Um, the word that went out to this congregation, I pray your spirit would apply it when necessary. It would break down any walls of resistance where you don't want those walls to be standing and that we would learn how to walk with you and talk with you uh, on a regular basis. In Jesus' name, we, we ask these things.